All planning and recording for this episode have taken place on Nunawal country. Hi, it's Sumi, one of the hosts of the Grass Ceiling podcast. This episode's a little bit different from what we usually do. So, The Grass Ceiling is a project that comprises both podcast episodes as well as written articles. The articles are all on our website and they explore in-depth some of the concepts and sustainability that maybe were too long to cover here or are just better read than heard. A lot of time and research have gone into writing them and they're really mind-blowing. I know because I'm still recovering from having my mind blown by some of the stuff that Nick's written. Our supervisor, Edwina, shout out, can vouch for that too. So today we've got a bit of a live reading slash discussion that follows on from some of the philosophical stuff that we talked about in our last episode. Nick's going to be reading from one of the pieces he's written and we'll kind of have chats here and there if things come up. As always, thanks for tuning in and you can find this article and way more at www.thegrassceiling.net. This is The Grass Ceiling, a guided tour of sustainability. Sustainability is ever-changing and complex, so join us as we break it down and figure it out. Nick, take it away. So this section I'm reading from is uh, chapter 17.3, Drawdown, a case study in prioritization. And essentially what I'm doing in this chapter is looking at this project called Drawdown, which was led by Paul Hawken. And Hawken was essentially overseeing a huge army of scientists. And the purpose of the Drawdown project was to find ways to reverse climate change. Hawken gave a talk on this project at ANU, and that's where I'm drawing a lot of the knowledge about it from. Really good to get it firsthand from the man himself. And I think there were a lot of things he said in that talk that are kind of a bit more hard to find online. So that's kind of what I wanted to share and what I wanted to focus on. So, as I said, they, they were looking for solutions on ways to reverse climate change. And Hawken made a specific point about this. He's like, he doesn't understand philosophically the idea of mitigation. Like, why would you mitigate something that's going to destroy you? You want to reverse that process. <laughs> you never want it to even happen in the first place. Um, and so with that in mind, that's sort of what the purpose of the Drawdown Project is. What's mitigation? So mitigation, as opposed to reversing, would be to reduce the effects of rather than stop the process from happening. So you might lessen the worst impacts of climate change as opposed to reverse the whole process entirely. So is it like making earthquake resilient buildings? Exactly, as compared to stopping earthquakes entirely. You know, not really possible for us to do right now, but that's, I think, a great example that illustrates the difference between the two. I'll launch into what I've written and maybe sort of paraphrase as I go along. The purpose of the Drawdown Project was to identify a range of potential methods to reverse climate change and then prioritise them according to certain criteria, in this case emissions reductions and costs. Emissions reductions is the key component of reversing climate change, and so this was considered the critical factor of a given solution's potential impact. The inclusion of costs is intended to act as a proxy for feasibility in general, suggesting that projects with economic gains are arguably more feasible. Although in many cases, as Hawken noted during his talk, ascertaining costs in some areas was really difficult, oftentimes too difficult to put a you know, dollar figure on, at least for this first version of the project. He also stressed something that's worth pointing out here, which is that various co-benefits exist with each of these solutions that go far beyond just purely economic considerations or considerations about emissions reductions. For example, empowering women to choose how many children they want to have, Uh, educating young girls, delivering rooftop solar, regenerating our natural environment. These are all examples of ways to achieve emissions reductions that may generate economic value. But they obviously also come with some pretty profound other benefits, you know, allowing women sort of freedom and autonomy that men get is something that goes far beyond just economic or environmental considerations. It just so happens to have huge emissions reductions benefits as well. In the essay, there's a comic included. It's kind of a very famous cartoon. It's by the artist Joel Pett. It went viral before the Copenhagen Climate Change Conference in 2009, and it kind of helped promote this idea of simple yet powerful co-benefits that come along with some of these things. So just to kind of visually paint the picture for you, if you've not seen the cartoon, and I'm sure some of you already know the one I'm talking about, there's a guy up there, you know, kind of delivering a a PowerPoint to a big crowd at a climate summit. There's a bullet-pointed list of things there, and it says sustainability, green jobs, livable cities, renewables, clean water, air, healthy children, etc., etc. And somebody in the crowd stands up and says, well, what if it's a big hoax and we create a better world for nothing? 
It's like even in the process of trying to combat climate change, even if it was a hoax, we would still create all these other huge co-benefits. And that's just an important thing to point out. It's not you know, strictly related to this, this chapter. The key sort of focal point on this chapter is that drawdown demonstrates something we could call prioritization. Now, prioritization feeds into a larger idea, which this whole chapter is about, which is triage. Now, triage is, in a nutshell, the idea that you should treat the most severe problem first and then sort of go on down the list. It's a way of doing treatment that is based on prioritization, and that prioritization is based on the severity of a condition. And this is something that they do in the emergency room at hospitals? Right, exactly. So triage is typically, um, it belongs in a medical context. So you might be a triage nurse working, say, in an emergency room ward, and people come in and present with different problems. And your job, and it's quite a tricky job, and it's quite a skill, is to figure out who should see treatment first. And what complicates this job, what makes it more difficult, is that you might have somebody who's very vocal about their problem, but they might not be in a life-threatening situation. You might have somebody who's very quiet and they're just quietly dying in the corner. And so you need to be very good at identifying risks in ways that when the behavior that those risks or the symptoms those risks exhibit aren't as, say, obvious as they might be. Obviously, it's very easy to deal with somebody who has a toothache versus somebody who's wheeled in with a gunshot wound to the head. But when two people get wheeled in and both of them are dying from poison, you don't know what it is or something like that. It's very hard to figure out who to treat first and so on. And, and that's kind of the analogy that I use to describe climate change and sustainability more broadly is we kind of lack a triage-based approach to sustainability. And if we're going to have a triage-based approach to sustainability, then one of the first things we need to do is get really good at prioritization. And so that's the whole reason I'm looking at this drawdown project is to basically say this is a really good example of how to go about prioritizing something. Um, the only problem, if there is a problem here, is that drawdown is focused just on climate change. What if we had instead a model of sustainability that focused on all the different risks facing us and then it prioritized that? It used some sort of criteria. Paul Hawkins' project uses net savings, net costs, and emissions reductions to prioritize all the candidate solutions for reversing climate change, what would be the metrics that we use to rank and prioritise how we deal with different uh, global existential threats. Drawdown demonstrates prioritisation, but not triage. The focus is on prioritising solutions by their effectiveness rather than ranking threats by level of severity. This isn't to say drawdown is bad, however. This isn't lazy thinking, it's just different. Different approaches should be encouraged because each framework is going to lend different strengths. A drawdown type approach can be good for identifying lesser known problems, for example, like refrigeration management. So that's a surprising number one on the list is refrigeration management, which is a bit of a surprising number one. You know, if we did better at cooling and heating homes around the world, we would have massive reductions in global emissions. And that's the beauty, I think, of doing a number crunching thing that prioritizes in that way, because it can kind of lead you against your own intuitions and take you to places that you otherwise might not have found and identify solutions that you may not have prioritized otherwise. As I've said to you once before, Sims, I think that more so than the results of drawdown, this methodology, this prioritization that they're doing, that might ultimately end up being their greatest achievement out of this project. So one key point here is to examine what that project is doing at that higher level because I think it's quite instructive in highlighting a process that might resemble triage or something you know, on the first steps towards a triage model. So the first step is to identify candidate issues for consideration. Uh, the next step is to develop criteria so that you can rank them. And then the third step is simply combining those two. So you apply that criteria and you develop a ranked list. As I sort of mentioned though, the problem with drawdown is it's only focused on climate change. And even then, you could also say it's focused on an environmental issue. You know, it's still stuck with it beneath the grass ceiling. So what if instead there was, you know, a work comparable to it that identified existential risks, it de developed a criteria for prioritizing them, and it produced a rank list, kind of like Drawdown has? What would that look like? So before you launch into it, could you just define what an existential risk is? We're on our way to understanding what that is. Um, and it's very difficult to explain all these concepts because they're interrelated. So just a working definition until we get to that definition is global existential risk is a risk that threatens to either annihilate humans or to drastically curtail our potential. It doesn't necessarily need to annihilate us, but just leave us in a really dire situation. So it's necessarily a sort of a human-centric idea, existential risk? Yeah, pretty much. Um, although 
it can take a sort of non-anthropocentric perspective insofar as if we destroy the planet, then it will also destroy all humans. But yeah, it is very anthropocentric. I think it's worth, worth noting. So this sort of stuff enjoys less mainstream attention than, say, the attention that climate change gets and so on. But it's worth noting and giving due credit that there has been a lot of work done already in attempting to create a kind of ranked list of global existential threats. And an example of that might come from a 2015 report called Global Challenges, 12 Risks That Threaten Human Civilization, The Case for a New Risk Category. And this comes out of a group called the Global Challenges Foundation. I'll talk about them briefly in a second. But I just want to talk about the list of the 12 risks that they identify because it's a bit of a mixed bag. So it features some you know, familiar things, nuclear war, meteors, climate change. But then it also features some lesser-known stuff, such as AI development, artificial intelligence development, uh, synthetic biology, nanotechnology, basically the bad fruits of unchecked modernization. So I'll just read quickly. Uh, we have extreme climate change, nuclear war, a global pandemic, ecological catastrophe, global system collapse, major asteroid impact, synthetic biology, a supervolcano, nanotechnology, artificial intelligence, and future bad global governance. And then another one that's just represented by question marks, unknown consequences. So we've talked about this um, at other times. We talked about how the development of plastic was originally, you know, the savior of the environment and then had some unknown consequences, unintended consequences much later down the line and became a kind of bane on the environment. Well, a lot of sort of existential risks that you just listed there that that article talked about, I can't even begin to wrap my head around what some of those are like i have no right. idea what you mean by nanotechnology for example <laughs> okay, sure do you want to talk a bit about some of them or do you kind of just want to talk about what unites all of these different risks so there isn't really a common theme other than the fact that their impact can be so severe that it constitutes a global existential risk it could either annihilate us or it could drastically curtail our future potential in terms of nanotechnology specifically um you know, there's actually kind of a laundry list of all the different things that can go wrong with nanotechnology. Just to give one example, you know, nanotechnology is essentially just working with things at very tiny scales. So that could be biotechnology. That could be us genetic modifying crops or livestock, for example, or it could be genetically modifying humans and so on. It could be the creation of a kind of an engineered virus. So an engineered pandemic rather than a sort of naturally created and naturally mutated one. But nanotechnology can also involve things like, uh, say we develop a new robot kind of drone that can go through your bloodstream. It's like the size of a red blood cell and it goes around zapping all the bad stuff. But what happens if somebody hacks that and, you know, we have 60 million people with these things inside of them and then suddenly they go rogue? There could be some serious problems there. Or what happens if there's just an unintended consequence from having these things running around inside of us? So that's at least part of the problem of nanotechnology. Nanotechnology typically integrates with other existential risks. So you often see it, for example, in dystopian science fiction combining with the idea of artificial intelligence gone bad, either intentionally bad or just unintended consequences bad. A kind of famous example is um, called the grey goo scenario where you have tiny little self-assembling robots but somebody hacks the off switch and so they never stop self-assembling and so this nanomolecular goo just kind of ends up covering the earth in this grey mass of nastiness. Anyways, um, <laughs> so there's lots of different ways. Um, that probably wasn't the most convincing or compelling argument against uh, nanotechnology's risks. Um, there's some probably more pragmatic threats that they pose in the near term. But I didn't actually look at that section on the paper. Quickly a bit about the Global Challenges Foundation, because I think they're a good example of a sustainability-focused think tank that also focuses on risk. So one of their board members is uh, Johan Rockström. He's a bit of a pioneering figure in sustainability. He sort of pioneered the concept of planetary boundaries, and he's been quite influential in sustainability. And just his presence, I think, alone indicates sort of what kind of a level of influence and profile that this organization has. So for this report, the GCF, the Global Challenges Foundation, they worked alongside, closely alongside a similar outfit, which is the Future of Humanity Institute, and they're based out of Oxford University and led by the philosopher Nick Bostrom, whose own work I've looked at in quite a lot of detail and who is quite an influential thinker in terms of this space of sustainability and how it relates to risk. So just briefly, I think it's interesting to note a few de details from that report, the 12 Risks report. Uh, you'll notice in the title of the report, it was called Global Challenges, 12 Risks That Threaten Human Civilization, 
the case for a new risk category. So what do they mean by a new risk category? So they don't talk necessarily about global existential risk. They instead talk about infinite risk. And this is what they want to be a new category. So as the report's title suggests, they've focused on developing a new definite risk that includes a new category, infinite risks. The term infinite here refers to their potential impact. So they have this figure, which is just risk equals probability times impact. Very simple formula. Risk is the same as probability times impact. Uh, and this is essentially how they calculate risk. And it drives their entire approach. And it's this kind of criteria-driven classification system that I think we need if we're going to have anything resembling a triage system, right? This is how you get to triage. Could you give a bit of an example on how that formula might be used to, say, compare two different risks? Right. So um, a high probability event with a low impact isn't as risky as a low probability event with a high impact. So put that more simply, a 90% chance of a common cold isn't as serious as a 1% chance of terminal cancer, right? So probability is an important thing. How likely is this thing to happen? But then also impact is the huge thing, you know, just because it's highly probable, if it's low impact, we don't really care about it. But if it's really high impact and even has a tiny little bit of probability of happening, then it's something that we need to be very serious about. This ties into the idea of the precautionary principle. This is an idea we see a fair bit in sustainability where it's like, because what's at stake is so high, because the impact is so large, in other words, it doesn't really matter so much the probability and the precautionary principle is a slight rephrasing of that it says you know we shouldn't let the fact that we don't have 100 percent complete scientific knowledge stand in the way of us taking action and the reason why that is is ultimately an argument or you could rephrase it as an argument about the impact because the impact could be so severe that we need to take action even if we're not 99 sure that we need to take it and what about those unknown consequences then well we look at those in terms of their potential impacts but we don't really have a clear idea about probabilities. And that's, I think, the value of having a formula like this is because if one part of the formula is really hard to complete, say probability, for example, we can still get some idea about how to rank it, at least based on its impact. This kind of strikes, I think, most people as common sense. I'm going to care more about something that has a high impact, regardless of its probability, than I will care about, you know, um, but the, the point is, in our everyday calculations of risk, we don't really behave rationally like this formula. We don't, we don't do a little calculation in our head when we think about risk a lot of the time. I mean, you're driving on a 100, 100 km per hour road on a daily basis. If you crash into someone else, that's a massive impact. Right. And you probably aren't scared of that. If you're your typical American, for example, you're more likely to die in a car accident, but you're definitely more scared of terrorists. Like, I mean, statistically, you know, based on uh, statistically um, rigorous sampling of the American population, for example, I open this whole chapter by talking about that. Americans are more scared of, of the governments taking away their guns than they are of gun violence directed at them. But they are statistically way more likely to die of, you know, gun violence than they are of, and the government's never done anything to take away guns, you know what I mean? Like, and part of what I talked about is how politicians and how the media, um, they get a lot of a, a value out of stoking certain fears. And we know this, this is a tale as old as time, you know, when a politician wants to win an election, he'll bring up something for everybody to feel scared of. And, you know, I think Donald Trump is a good example of this. Um, the xenophobia that he demonstrates, I think, is a good example of stoking up fears that aren't necessarily rational. To sort of get back to this paper, why it's good to just have it written down, even if it's completely blindingly obvious, risk equals probability times impact, is really good, I think, sometimes to just have it written down because... If it doesn't get that much traction in the real world, it's good to just have it kind of stated out loud from time to time. And maybe something else has occurred to you thinking about this formula, which is that some calculations don't quite boil down to numbers, right? Like the risks of, or the impacts rather of some risks are essentially infinite. So to illustrate this, the report actually starts with some history and it's a very interesting story. It's worth quoting in full. So this is, this is the story. It is only 70 years ago that Edward Teller, one of the greatest physicists of his time, with his back-of-the-envelope calculations, produced results that differed drastically from all that had gone before. His calculations showed that the explosion of a nuclear bomb, a creation of some of the brightest minds on the planet, including Teller himself, could result in a chain reaction so powerful that it would ignite the world's atmosphere, thereby ending human life on Earth. Robert Oppenheimer, who led the Manhattan Project to develop the nuclear bomb, halted the project to see whether Teller's calculations were correct. 
The resulting document, LA-602, Ignition of the Atmosphere with Nuclear Bombs, concluded that Teller was wrong. But the sheer complexity drove the assessors to end their study by writing that further work on the subject is highly desirable. The LA-602 document can be seen as the first global challenge report addressing a category of risks where the worst possible impact is in all practical senses infinite. So yeah, there's a pretty scary um, moment in human history where we were going to test that first nuclear bomb and somebody's back of the napkin calculation said, uh, this could theoretically ignite the atmosphere of the planet and kill us all, which was a new kind of risk that we'd never really seen before. So the idea from this scenario, I think, is a great example where the impacts would be so far-reaching and devastating that they're basically infinite for all intents and purposes. The end of the Earth is not something that we can really quantify with a number. It's an impact with no upper limits, and so therefore the impact is infinite in the author's minds. And this idea of infinite risk, this is really useful if you want to build a triage model of sustainability because it's inherently focused on the severity of the impacts as a determinant of a risk's importance. In this model, a broad range of threats is assessed using a new definition of risk and then using a criteria, probability and impact, that's the criteria, we can then determine what to prioritize. So this is essentially that three steps model of triage mentioned earlier that Drawdown kind of showed, you know, identify candidates, candidate risks, develop criteria, then apply those criteria. This is essentially what this group, the Global Challenges Foundation is doing. And what you get out of that, that list of threats it's quite different to, say, something like the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. The SDGs, they imply risks at times, say. The SDG number one is to eliminate global poverty. Now, that would eliminate risks. You know, that would eliminate a personal risk to a person from being poor, and it would eliminate sort of larger order societal risk. It would avoid social disorder, you know, that could, could come about from poverty. But the SDGs aren't really about risk reduction at the end of the day, are they? And so they don't mention anything about nanotechnology, for example, or meteors, and only indirectly kind of talk about the risk of an ecological collapse or the risk of global sort of governance collapse. So to go back to the report, another notable point is um, the communications challenges. This is, I think, going to be a recurring topic as we discuss um, the grass ceiling, but another notable point is the way that they approach communicating sustainability and communicating existential risk. Because this does represent, a new, I think, a unique kind of challenge. When you talk about existential risks, it can very easily veer into kind of negative messaging, and that can cause people to disengage, it can cause people to be scared, and create just a raft of undesirable outcomes. And so how you communicate this, I think, is particularly important, and the authors clearly recognize this. So I'll just quote from the report here. The idea that we face a number of global challenges threatening the very basis of our civilization at the beginning of the 21st century is well accepted in the scientific community and is studied at a number of leading universities. However, there is still no coordinated approach to address this group of challenges and turn them into opportunities. So there's an interrelationship here between danger and between opportunity and it's worth, I think, identifying as they have and targeting like they have because I think that's present in a lot of sustainability challenges. This idea kind of echoes an old truism. I think it was famously stated by US President John F. Kennedy. He said, uh, in the Chinese language, the word crisis is composed of two characters, one representing danger and the other representing opportunity. Now, I actually looked that up and he's not actually quite correct and it was a bit of a, you know, <laughs> white boy misappropriation <laughs> of the language. But the point here is, you know, I still think regardless of whether or not it's true, I think it's a nice way to think about it. Within every crisis, there is both a danger and an opportunity. And if that mode of thinking is good enough for JFK, then it's good enough for me. Focus on positive messaging, finding opportunities from the crises ahead. I think that is a better starting mindset than one focused on impending doom. <laughs> when you're talking about things like risk or crisis or opportunities, I guess a question that I have here is to whom and for whom and by whom? Is it considered an existential risk if it threatens to absolutely decimate the population of an entire continent, for example? Right. Or is it only an existential risk if every single human is killed? Is it considered an existential risk if, say, the planet is destroyed, but we have developed the technology to fly off onto Mars and build a colony there? And also when we talk about crises or opportunities, does it really matter who, is it going to be the rich people who are going to have those opportunities? Is it going to be everybody? How, how do we sort of make sense of mm -hmm. the fact that the, I guess society and, and the world is unequal within all that? So excellent question. And I think it leads perfectly into that next section, because at this point I stop taking us too far down the rabbit hole and I say, okay, first of all, you know, we need to nail down a definition of risk that can answer those sorts of questions. 
And when I got to this section, I realized just how kind of foundational that was, uh, how important that was. Because there's a lot of work that's going to then go into defining risk like that in itself is a huge step. And it's the necessary first step before you can do any of this other stuff. You need to have a clear definition of risk, but the act of defining risk is itself very important. And it's kind of a meta task too, because if you don't define risk sufficiently well, then you open yourself up to risk. It's very meta. Anyways. um, I'm still trying to wrap my head around that. If you... Don't define risk well, then you open yourself up to risk. Is that because you're less likely to recognize it as a risk? Exactly, exactly, yeah. So it's a very meta task. You know, it's a philosophical undertaking to worry too much about definitions, and that's typically the work of a philosopher is to tear their hair out wondering about what the correct definition of something is. But this has real practical implications and really high-stakes implications too because if we define risk too narrowly, then we risk getting blindsided by something that we didn't include in our definition and then it's game over for the species, you know. Right. So if, say, the physical bodies of humans were to still be in existence but we were to not have the same autonomy or control over them as we might right now, mm-hmm. does risk encompass that kind of loss of humanity right. or is it only the absolute and total decimation of like our hearts no longer beat and our brains no longer work? Yeah, again, I think that that's going to depend hugely on your definition of risk. I'll take us through to this last chapter that I'll share. And that'll talk a lot to this idea and what I think is a good definition of risk. It starts with a quote from Carl Sagan, who said, if you wish to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first invent the universe. And the point he's making there is that before you can make the apple pie from scratch, you first need to invent gravity and you need to invent atoms and you need to do all this other stuff first. So even just making the apple pie is a much more deceptively complex task. And, and same here with, building a risk-based model, you first need to do all this other stuff. You need to build the universe underneath it. So just quickly return to that high-level framework we talked about for building a triage-focused risk-based model of sustainability. Step one, you identify candidate issues for consideration. Step two, you develop a criteria to rank them. And then step three, you apply that criteria and you develop a ranked list. So if you wish to build that list of risks, you must first define what you mean by risk. So in that GCF report, they broaden their definition, right? They redefined risk to include a new category, which was infinite risks. And they demonstrated the importance of areas previously underexplored. Let's look at another definition that's sort of similar to that, but also different. And this comes from Nick Bostrom, who, as you recall, led up one of the groups, the Future of Humanities Institute, that cooperated with the Global Challenges Foundation um, on that report. And I think there's a few better to call in for this job than Nick Bostrom. I mean, he's written at length on existential risk and he's quite influential in this space. And he's been talking and developing on this idea of risk since a paper back in 2002. And then more recently, back in 2013, he kind of revisited that idea. And throughout that time, he's been trying to come up with a sort of comprehensive definition of risk that speaks to those questions you're asking. So he has a figure that's kind of hard to visually describe, but along the uh, top to bottom axis, the y-axis, is scope. And scope can range from personal, you can think about scope also as scale. So personal scale, local scale, and global scale. And then going along the horizontal axis, the uh, X. axis, <laughs> you have the intensity or the severity of a certain risk. It could be an endurable risk. It could be something that, you know, your car gets stolen, you can survive that. It's not going to like completely annihilate your existence. Whereas if that stolen car drives over your face at 100 kilometers an hour, that is not an endurable risk, that is a terminal risk. So we've got variance in scale and we've got variance in severity. And we can superimpose onto that a third thing, which is probability. And I'll just flag just that we can do that. I won't disappear too much into the discussion of that. But I talked before about how risk equals probability times impact, right? Well, this is a different kind of conceptualization of risk as a combination of things at different scales, things at different impacts. And then you can superimpose onto that the probability aspect. I have a question about the y-axis and how it's, you know, you go from personal or individual and then you go to Mm -hmm. uh, regional, global. global. What if, say, there is a risk that threatens to affect one person or one group of people? And it's a very, very small group of people. But what if, say, that kills a whole host of knowledge that they may have that could unlock the secrets to saving a really important ecological species or what if say the one person that you kill is someone who has a lot of 
power in the world. So that would be an example then of a risk that appears to be endurable, but is actually terminal. You know what I'm saying? So I think that's what you're trying to argue is a group of people might drop off the face of the planet and will say, ah, the human species can endure that. That's not a problem. But it turns out that they were going to play some key role that would have helped all of us avoid existential annihilation. Um, So in that case... What we do have there is a tricky situation where something looks endurable but is actually terminal for us. Right, and sometimes you may not know that until you have hindsight. Exactly. And this is what Bostrom sort of is trying to get at. I'll come to that in a bit, but yeah, he points out the fact that we're not going to be very good at dealing with these kinds of terminal risks because typically nothing survives them. So there's nothing around to learn the lesson. And if you think about this as a biologist or you think about this in terms of evolution, typically nature selects for an advantage and whittles away something that is disadvantageous by comparison. So nature and natural selection kind of teaches organisms over time. In this account, there's nobody left to be taught. So there's no way that we've evolved biologically to deal with these problems. And as Bostrom argues, we haven't evolved culturally to deal with these problems either because... We've never seen problems that are global existential risks before. So I'll just read his his definition here. Existential risks. One where an adverse outcome would either annihilate Earth-originating intelligent life. Notice how that's not necessarily anthropocentric. Earth-originating intelligent life or permanently and drastically curtail its potential. So you asked earlier about how anthropocentric it is. And it's, with that in mind, reading that quote out, I just realized it's not actually necessarily anthropocentric. Annihilating Earth-originating intelligent life could mean that we stick around, but the rest of the biosphere is gone, and we could consider that to be an existential risk. As Bostrom argues, risks in this sixth category are a recent phenomenon. This is part of the reason why it is useful to distinguish them from other risks. And by sixth category, I mean, sorry, I should clarify here. Existential risks are ones that are global in scale and terminal in impact. Their probability is less important. The fact is that they have such a large scale and such a high impact that they are essentially global existential risks, sometimes just called X risks, but that's such a tongue twister. Right. So even if the probability that something might happen is 0.00001%. It's still a global existential risk. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's just a very low probability risk. As Bostrom argues, risks in this sixth category are a recent phenomenon. This is part of the reason why it is useful to distinguish them from other risks, say a local-scale terminal risk or an international-scale terminal risk. We have not evolved mechanisms, either biologically or culturally, for managing such risks, Bostrom says. Evolving and developing these mechanisms is no easy task. There's no place for the trial and error approach we often use. We cannot learn from a mistake when its consequences are fatal, simply because nobody's left around to draw any lessons from it. Our approach, therefore, is going to be inherently and unavoidably speculative. It's going to be a process in which we're trying to anticipate an unknowable future and trying to build our capacities for foresight that is accurate. Additionally, Bostrom says, the institutions, moral norms, societal attitudes, and national security policies that developed from our experience with managing other sorts of risks may be less useful in dealing with existential risks, which are a different type of beast. And this is sort of demonstrated, I think, by the work that, say, for example, came out of the Global Challenges Foundation, um, which Bostrom himself, you know, is speaking somewhat from a position of personal experience and authority on because that was partly his work. Because if you look at these so-called exotic threats like molecular nanotechnology, for example, that's not something the UN really talks about or not certainly when it uses its most mainstream frameworks of sustainability, such as the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. So I think this is kind of what Bostrom's getting at when he's saying these traditional institutions, these traditional norms and whatever, they're not particularly well-equipped in every case to handle these new types of threats. So it's going to be these new sort of emerging institutions, I think, with a fundamentally different philosophical approach different starting point about how to conceive of sustainability as you know a response to different threats they're going to produce and create information and responses i think that are not only important but they're going to exist sort of on the periphery they're going to exist outside of the mainstream and that in itself represents all kinds of problems with you know engagement and profile and influence and so on but yeah i think that's just a good glimpse of the underlying philosophical ideas about risk and what they mean sort of pragmatically in terms of what kind of perspective on sustainability you get out of them it's very different i think than a lot of the mainstream conceptualizations of it and 
When you look at, say, climate change right now, like climate change just dominates the discourse on existential risk. If we are having a conversation right now, a high-profile, influential, mainstream conversation about global existential risk, and we are, like 99% of the time it's about climate change. Why do you think that is? I think it's part of the grass ceiling. I think we're still sort of trying to break through the grass ceiling. It comes from that history of sustainability being rooted in environmentalism, the dominance of environmentalism in it. I think that's a huge factor in it. And and so that environmental agenda still dominates um, when we talk about sustainability. And I think also because climate change is obviously a pertinent issue. Like, I mean, it's really hard to tell without a ranked list, but I mean, it would surely have to be a top three in terms of severity, in terms of impact, in terms of endurability. It's a big question mark on how endurable it is. In your interview with Will Steffen, for example, he talked about how... One second. The interview with Will Steffen that Nick's mentioning here was conducted before this episode was recorded, but it's not been released yet. So no, it's not missing from your feed and Nick's not just returned from the future. It's just a scheduling thing. All right, back to it. In your interview with Will Steffen, for example, he talked about how if we continue down on a business as usual approach, then there's going to be about a billion people left on the, on the planet. Like that's about the most that we could sustain, according to some study he'd looked at. And... You might say, oh, well, that's an endurable threat for us, but that means 6 billion people die. And what that collapse looks like could also just be awful. You know, how we respond to a collapse situation might itself present existential risks of its own, like uh, Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. And I don't know about the book because I haven't read it, but the, the TV show, I think it's very explicitly trying to make this point that this nightmarish world of like hyper-misogynistic religious, you know, authoritarianism didn't come out of a vacuum. This was people trying to save the planet from ecological collapse. And what they reached to was this ugly, violent, just horrible world. It's a really hard show to watch at times. But every now and then you get this glimpse of the world beyond and why they're doing it. And you suddenly realize, holy crap, like as bad as these people are and as rotten as this society as they've built, they're literally trying to save their species. Like that's, that's what's at stake here. And this is the dark path that they've had to take, you know, in response to that challenge. And so I guess the point there is we haven't annihilated human life in that example. This is the other definition that Bostrom provided. This is the drastic curtailing of potential, right? The same way that a billion people being left instead of seven billion people is a drastic curtailing of our potential. It's the curtailing of the potential of six billion people and their offspring that, you know, would have come. So in understanding existential risk, how do we understand how maybe different existential risks might relate to one another or maybe identifying the costs or considerations of addressing and avoiding existential destruction. Right. So that's really difficult to answer, I think. I mean, the costs are practically infinite. You know, if the impacts are infinite, then the costs are infinite. Understanding existential risks, I think, like, Bostrom's made the first steps, but when I read his papers, I do, I am very mindful that he's not the final word on a lot of this. And I do at some point criticise this idea that, He's got a, you know, very neatly categorized on paper, but the reality is always going to be way messier. Um, you know, he has a very clear black and white line going between the word endurable and the word terminal, but it's not always clear cut. Like, for example, if you look at dinosaurs, from one perspective, uh, the dinosaurs suffered from a terminal existential risk, whether it was the meteor or some other incident, what have you. That drastically curtailed their potential, if not annihilated them, right? It didn't technically annihilate them because birds are still around and birds aren't descendants of dinosaurs. They're just dinosaurs still living and chilling and flying around like they were all those millions of years ago. So from the bird's perspective, it was endurable. So from one dinosaur's perspective, it was endurable and from one, it wasn't. And this ties back to your starting point about risk for who and your kind of recurring point you often make, I think, in sustainability. It's like we talk about progress, progress for who, risk, risk for who. And that question, I think, hints at broader questions about class and societal power and status and the humanity we either give people or deny them, human rights and so on. Okay, let's talk about The Handmaid's mm -hmm. Tale. I haven't read it, but from what you said, it seems like the pursuit of avoiding ecological destruction right. in that pursuit. They're trying to save their species, basically. They end up in this really otherwise dystopian environment where mm -hmm. there's a lot of 
sexual violence and all sorts of other awful things. I guess it makes me think and question what is the moral ethical paradigm that we're in now that we think is so unalienable and what might existential risk sort of push us to in terms of like for example the majority of us I'm not saying every single one of us but the majority of us wouldn't wake up one day and say all right today I'm just going to go out and kill a person but living in a risk conscious society well would it make us sort of see everybody else as our enemy and sort of every man for himself kind of mindset and we're constantly in you know fight or flight mode I don't know. I, I'd imagine that existential risk would fuck with us psychologically it can, it and can, affect our relationships can, with other people. It could create that kind of siege mentality, you know what I mean? If And that ties back to the importance that, you know, the authors of that report identified in reframing it kind of it's about finding opportunities and turning those challenges into opportunities as much as possible. But, yeah, it's this really tricky um, conflict between two priorities here on one hand we need to face facts we need to look at you know what the reality is out there and that includes looking at some pretty confronting challenges ahead and then we need to counterbalance that with what we know about human psychology and how we respond to those confronting things and figure out we'll be talking about sustainability communication in future episodes but i think this discussion about the philosophy and so on underpinning sustainability and frameworks for sustainability already just shows how critical and how foundational that challenge is, I think, because we're dealing with ultimately what is a communication problem and a psychology problem um, at the end of the day. And, yeah, we don't want to alienate people. We don't want them to be under siege mentality all day. Although we've also seen how well fear motivates people and we've seen how easy it is to sort of plant certain fears in people's minds. So if we're manipulating people in one way already and it's not a good way, can we manipulate them in a more benign way maybe, you know? Um, Just to quickly backtrack to something, your idea about a risk for who and so on. It's interesting that in that graph and in that discussion, that graph in the paper, Bostrom actually at one point talks, and this is one I think one of his biggest mistakes in the paper, he talks about how he's trying to give an example of an endurable risk for a kind of a a national or a smaller geographical scale. And he talks about a loss of cultural heritage as an endurable risk for for a community. And that just immediately struck me as wrong because I'd been dealing with the issue at the time. I thought about the people in Wilcannia, which is like a remote town in... uh, um, Northwest New South Wales. Northwest New South Wales, yeah. And it's um, like many sort of remote towns connected into the Murray-Darling Basin. It's been running out of water. Might be Central West, I don't know. Anyway, okay. Yeah. Um, but there's a bunch out in, you know, Colorenabri, um, oh, I'm trying to think of some others. Um, Walgett. Walgett, yeah, that's right. Walgett's another one. That's, um, so there's all these sort of remote communities and typically predominantly, you know, Indigenous Australians on these communities. And the river's drying up, and the river's drying up for many reasons. Um, we won't get into too much of it now, but the long and the short of it is, to oversimplify a little bit, because of colonialism, you know, white people came and fucked up the river. And there's just this powerful line in this article I read about the people in Wilcannia, and they were saying they'd lost the water from the river that they'd taught cultural, that was their cultural heritage, right? And they'd taught through countless generations about, you know, they passed on their stories and their history by using the river as like a... It, it was like a way to teach future generations that. And when the river died, so did that ability to pass on that heritage, right? Now, according to Bostrom's table and the way he describes it, that's an endurable risk. But it's not. That's terminal, pretty much. For, um, or it certainly threatens to be terminal for those cultures, for their way of life, and for their sense of self and identity. Yeah, that, that line that um, really struck me from that article was, they were saying, I can't get culture from a bore pump. They'd been provided with another means of water, you know, this bore pumping up water from the ground, but that wasn't the culture, you know, that didn't replace that. That was irreplaceable. That comes from the river and the river alone. And so it looked to me like a terminal risk. And I think what this revealed, and I talked about this in more detail later on in this essay, is this sticky relationship, this really intractable, messy, murky relationship between risk and personal values and culture and history and (laughs) it's a lot more subjective and i think wishy-washy and hard to pin down when you really get into who's being impacted and why and so on yeah i guess um what's the relationship between sustainability and social justice like what is the value of leveling the playing field 
in comparison to, for one, do we have to compare the two, but mm. how do we sort of weigh that up against the long-term goals or pursuits of human society more broadly? And, right. and ca can we even define homogenous goals of human society more broadly? See, uh, I think one mistake a lot of people do, and I think this might be the mistake Bostrom's doing, is slipping into like species level thinking, like just thinking of us kind of as an organism and that organism has to persist over time. And if we've achieved that, then we've, and we avoid all the icebergs along the way in our boat, then we've achieved sustainability for a time. But it's obviously about more than that. It's funny, in our, in our first submission of essays for our supervisor, Edwina, we came up with a definition of sustainability that talked about it in those very simple terms, that kind of organistic terms, and it said the ability to persist over time. And, and Edwina was like, well, what about flourishing? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, I don't just want to persist in life. I want to persist as... I want to live. Yeah, I want to live. And I think it's such a simple question, but it illustrates A, the, the, sorry, the challenge of finding a good definition of sustainability that's going to fit every scenario and every way of thinking about it. And B, I think it shows that, you know, that sticky relationship between personal values and closely held personal beliefs that are kind of inarguable. It's like, well, I believe what I believe and I have the values I have. Like these aren't facts that we debate back and forth. And then how you reconcile those personally held beliefs with a consensus idea about what constitutes an endurable and a terminal risk. Because yeah, I could say it's an endurable risk for you, but you might you might disagree entirely. I guess it presents a it presents a bit of a challenge to to Bostrom's definition of existential risk as being both terminal but also at a global scale. Is an existential risk still an existential risk if say six billion people die? Do you have to look at where those six billion people were geographically in order to be able to? Or are you just looking understand? at it like a number six out of exactly. seven billion? Exactly, because if say the only people who are left standing are the people who are, I don't know, in the Middle East region or something like that, then basically you've lost a whole host of knowledge of culture, future potential in achievements, technological understandings, trade, all sorts of things. Or thinking about the global production of mm -hmm. things generally. What sort of life is that going to be if six billion people would be wiped off the face of the earth? And then to go back to the Handmaid's Tale, it doesn't even have to be annihilation that happens. We can survive the, the first hurdle, but then how we manage that, how we tackle that, the society we created as a response can just be a nightmarish world in which nobody would really want to live anyways. And then in that case, it's not annihilation that made it the existential risk, but the drastic curtailing of potential, as he describes it. And that in itself, you can already tell just from the way that's worded, that's going to be up for definition and up for debate, right? Like what's potential and what does curtailing it mm -hmm. and what quantifies curtailing versus drastic curtailing and so on. So there's lots of wiggle room here, I think, to, to describe a sort of broader problem. But yeah, so we talked about like if you ask the birds – the meteor was an endurable risk, but if you ask the, you know, Triceratops, Triceratops says, nah, that was bad, <laughs> you know. And so if you ask, say, one of the one billion people left on Earth after everyone else dies, if it was endurable, they might say yes, but, you know. So it's a contested kind of definition, but it's, it's certainly a good definition, I think, to start at least thinking about sustainability in a different way. One other f final point is you can think about annihilation in a whole nother concept, right? So say one day uh, we can just upload our brains to computers and just all leave Earth and shoot ourselves in lasers across the cosmos or something. And the human species then kind of goes out of fashion as a result. Was that an endurable or terminal risk for the human species? Because the species isn't around anymore, but something's still carrying the torch in the form of an us. Annihilation itself isn't a clear-cut concept. Or, again, to look at the birds and the, the bird versus the triceratops. Annihilation, again, doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Well, I guess even to look at maybe the different ways that different cultures might deal with their dead, some people believe that there needs to be a very specific set of rituals that you follow in order to sort of preserve the knowledge and the value of that person that's passed. Mm -hmm. Um Whereas others believe that in order to do that, you sort of bury them in the ground. Others believe in cremation. And if we are to think about the wiping of the human race, it's important to consider the way that different people yep. value 
life and what yeah, life means. I mean, if you believe you in like to. reincarnation or something, you might have a very different perspective, right? Is that sort of what you, yeah. you're getting at? Yeah. Different views on death are going to change that annihilation definition even further, aren't they? Yeah. There's this assumption that someone's spirit and words have to live on. And okay, the invention of the dictionary has been associated with the stymieing to an extent of the evolution of language. Right. So when you take something and you sort of write it in stone, then you don't allow it to evolve as quickly or in the same organic way as it used to. Mm -hmm. So if we were to take all of the knowledge of all the living human beings at this current moment, what does that mean for, I guess, a seemingly inherent thing about humanity that has to do with us evolving over time, us changing, you know, mm-hmm. having a different understanding of morality over time, having emotional memories. What do you choose to keep? What do you choose to give away? Mm-hmm. What if, if what if there is something that's particularly private to someone, but that private memory really guided everything that they said and did in their entire life? Mm-hmm. It's so hard to sort of wrap your head wrap well, your head around that. I think this is like a, this is a philosophical question at the end of the day, right? We're asking kind of what is humanity? Like at the end of the day, what makes a human human? What makes them worthy of being treated as a human? So, I'm studying that. That's one of my courses right now is what is humanity. And the reason I'm studying it is literally so that it can inform my sustainability stuff, but it's an elective and that's frustrating. This should be part of any kind of transdisciplinary study of sustainability it should involve these kind of philosophical discussions and it's very frustrating that it's kind of seen as outside of the discipline in a degree that's supposed to be interdisciplinary there's a lack of understanding i think in a lot of talking about sustainability of those deeper philosophical issues and what the implications of them are i guess remember you can find that article in full as well as more great written content on the tgc website the grass healing podcast is hosted by nick blood and hosted and produced by me samithra venkatsubramanian our project supervisor is Dr. Edwina Fingleton Smith. The grass ceiling is made possible thanks to the technical support of the ANU Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. For more TGC content, check out our website at www.thegrassceiling.net. A big thank you to the ANU Fenner School of Environment and Society for all their support in making this project happen. All music used in this episode was produced by Jackson Weeb. Blooper time! Along the uh, top to bottom axis, the X axis, uh, he top has. Bottom is Y. Oh, it's top to bottom Y. Yeah, okay. Y is <laughs> independent. X is dependent. <laughs> so he has a. Um...